Remember I told you that one of the major themes of Hebrews is Jesus as our high priest. And the writer is developing this theme here in chapter 5. The first four verses cover basically the requirements of the high priest. And then 5 through 10 um, cover how Jesus meets those requirements and arguably actually exceeds those requirements. But we're going to be looking at the first four verses. Uh, in context, the writer is writing about the qualifications for a priesthood. For us, we'll look at those, but I want to do the best I can to pull out five qualities that apply for us, I believe apply for us today, and what God um, would have us to learn from this, okay? Uh, I would say no doubt you've seen the news. We're going to continue to pray for Israel, for the Middle East, for Gaza. Uh, God instructs us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, so we want to do that. And also this morning, we're going to be praying for the Sharp family. Uh, we love you guys. We're going to miss you. Uh, I was telling Peter earlier, like, you're going to San Diego, so you're going to see me again. I'm going to come bug you, and we'll get some fish tacos together. So, Okay? Uh, we're going to pray for the Sharps this morning as well. Hebrews chapter 5, if you're there, I'm going to invite you to stand in honor of God and His Word. If you're visiting this morning too, oh, man, we're blessed. Thank you. Welcome to Calvary. Uh, thank you for watching online if you're watching online. And my prayer always is that you're encouraged and edified. And I'm going to add this as well, that you're challenged by the Word of God as we study it. The writer tells us, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things that pertain to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray. Why? Since he himself is also subject to weakness. And because he is, verse 3, he's required, as for the people, but also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. The idea is for his own sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. All right, we're going to pause there. We'll pray. We're going to pray for Peter and Chanel, just the sharps as well. Father, thank you for the morning. Lord, thank you. Just reminded of your word, how it tells us that you are the potter and we are the clay. And Lord, you are working as a master craftsman in our life. And you are molding and shaping, at times pulling and cutting things away that just don't belong. All of it, Lord, we are works in progress. And we thank you, God, for your work of grace in each of our lives. We're at different stages of that work. We're in different places. But Lord, you're so good, you meet us where we're at. And Father, we pray that you would meet us this morning as we have opened your word, we've read these passages, to give us understanding as to what they mean. But Lord, beyond that also, how does this apply? That we would ask, so what? And then Lord, you would tell us, what's what? God, we lift up Peter and Chanel to you. We love them. We're so excited for what you've been doing in their life, and their family. It's bittersweet. We're going to miss them. But we pray that you'd bless them in every way. Lord, for the, the remaining days of all the processes of checking out and getting the signatures and packing, Lord, just give them favor. But also as they arrive in San Diego, Lord, just 
the community, the house, the school, the friends, the duty, the shop, Lord, just, and, and Lord, the church. We pray that you would just go ahead of them in every way. Father, we love them. We commit them to you. And Lord, we do pray for Jerusalem, for Gaza, for the Jew and the Palestinian. Lord, you love them alike. And you desire that, that they would come to know who Jesus Christ is. And so, Lord, we pray and we trust that your word says you'll work all things together for good, for your gospel. And so, Lord, we just want to come in line with that as your word tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Lord, we do. Speak to us now, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name together. Amen. Amen. All right. Take a moment. Say hello. Kind of wave and smile through your mask at the new people. Smile with your eyes. <laughs> so here, verses 1 through 4 is kind of like God's job description requirements for this role of the high priest. You ever wondered... Ever daydream about, like, if you weren't doing your current job, what other job maybe you'd want to do? Sometimes I do, though I, I would say that I have the best job on planet Earth. Um, but, you know, some of you I know have been praying for you. You're, you're in pursuit of maybe a different career, career change. Some of you are going to school, and you have a goal, and you're going after it. I think, good for you. That's awesome. Pray that, man, God just blesses your flip-flops off, whatever you're pursuing. You know. And some of us, we realize, okay, it's a season that we're doing now, and then maybe there's another season coming at some time, and, and it's going to look different, right? Um, I, I, to be honest with you, I don't know what else I would be doing if I wasn't doing this, because if the truth be told, I have no other skills. I, you know, um, my dream job is uh, the guys that get to design all the Lego sets, right? Like, like how do you get that job, right? That's a, you're just playing with toys all the time, right? Um, but I, I, you know, I think like, oh man, I, Lord, I don't know what else I would be doing if I wasn't doing this because I don't think I have any other skills. I don't have nunchuck skills or, uh, you know, woodworking skills or hunting skills or any of those skills. But uh, here in chapter five, uh, the author continues. He has been making this discussion uh, in many ways, trying to encourage the reader that Jesus is better than any and everything that they have trusted in the past. And for the Jewish Christian, that meant a lot of things. That meant uh, Moses and the prophets and Aaron and a whole system that God had instituted. And they had moved away from that to the grace of Jesus. But there's a lot of temptation for them to go back to what they knew and what they trusted. And so the writer is trying to let them know, listen, Yes, God had that, but it was temporary. And what God has in Jesus Christ now is the fulfillment. It is the final installment of everything that you have been waiting for. Even the priesthood and the system itself was just a foreshadow. It was just a, a preview of coming attractions. And Christ is actually our great high priest. And from the end of chapter 4 and all the way, we're going to see this. It's a major theme of Hebrews. He's going to bring us even into the beginning of chapter 10 to develop this theme about how Jesus is our great 
high priest. And he's going to demonstrate not only did Jesus meet the requirements, but he exceeded the requirements. And thus makes him unique to then fulfill singularly the role of our eternal and heavenly high priest. Nobody else could do that. But here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, he reminds the reader of the requirements that God had for the priesthood. Uh, And so we're going to look at this, look at these requirements, and I'm going to pull out as best I can five qualities then that we can glean from these four verses that hopefully uh, we can apply for our lives today. So I draw your attention back to verse 1 as we do. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed, and the idea is appointed by God, for men okay, to minister to other people. Notice in things that pertain to God, so he's, he's not building Legos. Uh, he's not uh, you know, the guy getting the, the grocery cart at the grocery store. Uh, he's not your sandwich artist. He is the person ministering to the people things of God. And he's offering gifts and sacrifices. That, that's the role. That's the responsibility. But what is the requirement? We're going to just restate what we read. The first requirement we read is that the high priest was chosen amongst men, amongst the people that he lived with, the rest of the family. God was the one who said, listen, I appoint you. You're going to be the priest and the high priest, and you're going to work for me. Now, as we have covered already, and the writer has already been hinting at this, Jesus has met this requirement fully and completely. Back in chapter 2, in fact, when he first begins to introduce the theme of Jesus as our high priest, he says, Therefore, in all things, Christ had to be made. He had to come as a human to be like you and me, to just just be like the brethren. Why? Why? so that he could be a merciful and high priest pertaining to the things of God, chapter 2, verse 17. And so the writer is establishing, listen, Jesus meets these requirements. He qualifies. Again, later on next week, we're going to see not only is he he qualified, he's actually overqualified. He far exceeds the expectation. He's above zone, way above zone. Now, we talked also how the high priest could only come from a specific family group. You had to have the right genes, if you will. You had to have Levi genes to come from the tribe of Levi. God said to this particular family, I'm choosing you. Now, what made them special? Were they already special? No. The fact that God chose them made them special. They're just like everybody else. But there was an occasion where some crazy things happened, and Moses says, okay, well, who's with God and who's not? And it was the Levites that ran over the line first and said, we're with the Lord. God says, oh, man, I love that. I will honor those who honor me. And so he picked them to be a, a, a one family amongst the 12 to minister to the rest of the families, to minister to him and then represent him to the rest of the families. Nobody else could do that role. Nobody else was allowed. But we talked about how those Levites, though, they're just like everybody else. They put their sandals on the same way that everybody else did. 
They had the same marriage struggles. They yelled at their kids like we do from time to time, right? They, they had money problems. They, they're just like their neighbors. They're, they were special, but they were just regular people. And God wanted it that way, and we're going to see why in a second. But how does that apply to us? That's great for them. I'm, I don't know that I'm from the tribe of Levi, probably not. So what principle remains for us? What do we glean from this? Here's what I want to submit to you. Listen, God uses people to minister to people. That was true then, and that's true now. In fact, I would add this as we look at verse 2. God uses imperfect people to minister to imperfect people, broken people that minister to broken people. Well, we read in through the Bible, there are some occasions where God will use angels, but that's not his, that's not his choice by majority, right? That's not the default choice. On exception, we, we see these different angels show up, and God will use them to deliver messages, special messages, at times answer prayers and and so, yes, God uses angels from time to time, but the majority of Scripture demonstrates to us that God doesn't use angels mostly. He uses people. He used the donkey one time. Arguably, he used the great fish. But God doesn't use animals. He doesn't use angels. He doesn't use robots. He uses people. Oh, speaking of robots... This, uh, I, I don't remember when it was. It was a couple months ago. I came across this article that there is a Buddhist temple in mainland Japan that started using a robot to minister to people because of COVID. And so I remembered the story, and so I went back and Googled, and I found out, oh, there's not just one. There's several. And so there's one in, um, oh, I didn't write where he's, where he's at. I want to say he's in Osaka. I could be wrong. Don't Google it now because you're not going to pay attention. Google it later, okay? <laughs> but his name is Pepper, and he performs priestly duties. He'll give messages, and he does funerals, this robot, Pepper. But then a couple weeks ago, uh, there's a new one. It's kind of, well, in my opinion, a little bit scary. I don't know that I'd go. Pepper didn't look too bad, but there's one. This one's name is Mindar. Buddhist priest robot, speaks several languages, ministers messages and, and services and rites, and the way that the website described this robot is an aluminum androgynous robotic priest, stands six feet tall, weighs 70 pounds, preaches in the Kodaji, Kodaiji temple, it's a 400-year-old temple. This robot reminds me of some movies that I've seen, right? Cyberdyne, yeah. And the last one uh, is one in China, and this robot's name is, if I'm pronouncing it right, Zengir. And so the website said the purpose of Zengir as a Buddhist robot priest is to reach out to people who are more connected with their smartphones than their inner being. But you know, I had a suspicion. Can you go back to that first picture, Jason? I think that Pepper moonlights at Hamazushi. I think it's the same robot that takes your number when you go in there. I think so, right? 
I'm okay with a robot taking my seat number, but ministering to my soul? No, that's the line. I Sushi, yes. My soul, no. Right? <laughs> it's crazy. Right? In June, we're going we're gonna to be ordaining Alex, who's a human being. Right? <laughs> and he's a good guy. God's been working in him. But can you imagine? I'm like, hey, we're going to be ordaining, ordaining Alex in this you know, Cyberdyne system T-800. Right? <laughs> Arnold. Alec, Pastor Alex and Pastor Arnold, right? Alex will do administration, and Arnold will handle all your complaints. You know, like, <laughs> crazy. God doesn't use robots. Right? He uses people. He chooses people to minister to people. And that is true of the priesthood. And guess what? Can I say this? That's true of your life, too. God wants to use you. The Bible tells us that all of us, if you will, are part of a royal priesthood that God brings us into as believers in Jesus Christ. Right? One of the privileges that we get is to minister to one another. And so God wants to use you, guess what, imperfect you, broken you, fallible you, with all of your quirks and idiosyncrasies that God loves, that God knows, and yet says, hey, I want you then to minister my love and my grace and my goodness, the work that I'm doing in your life to be a blessing to the person sitting next to you or lives in the apartment across from you or works in the cubicle next to you or, you know, just the team that you're on, wherever you find yourself. And that's how God works. And we're told in Galatians 6 to bear each other's burdens, right, to fulfill the law of Christ. We're told in Hebrews 10 later on, we're to consider one another. That's the idea of being mindful of one another. Why? So we can spur each other on to good deeds and love. Listen, God wants to use you. God has chosen you to represent him to the people around you. And the truth be told, there are people that you get connected to that are in your life, that are in your circle, that are in your family, that maybe right now they don't want to come to church. And even though we have a live stream, they're like, nah, I don't want to click on that. You know, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he, and he reminds them of this truth that we get to be ambassadors for Christ. We get to be, and he uses this interesting phrase, living epistles. As though like we're walking Bibles. God's story of love and goodness, forgiveness and grace is written on you. And people then see you and watch your life. You get to be a Bible, if you will, to the people that you are connected to. Well, here's the verse. It's 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Again, it's true for the priesthood. It's true for pastors. It is true for you. You are a chosen people. God says you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, why did God call you? Why does God ordain you? That you and I might proclaim the praises of him who's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Who were once not a people, but now are a people. Who were once from far off from God, but now have been drawn near. And we get to proclaim the goodness of God. We've received mercy. The same grace in which you and I are saved is the same grace that sustains us. And guess what? It's the same grace we get to share with other people. Amen? I pray that we do that. 
Now, we might ask, and a priest might even ask, although it's part of their family heritage, why me, God? Why would you pick me? There are so many other people that are more qualified. They could do this better. They speak better. They are smarter. They can jump higher, run faster. And yet the Lord chooses you as he chose me. You know, sometimes the argument we put up, though, is like, Lord, I I wouldn't pick me. I'm broken. I'm imperfect. I I know my sinful tendencies. I know my flesh. Why would God choose any human? I mean, robots would be better, I guess in one sense, right? Angels definitely would be better. But why would he pick people? I mean, people people are so fickle. People are so uh, unreliable. People can be mean and cruel and say mean things. You know, someone once said, like, schools and churches would be great without people. I don't say that. I don't know who said that. Anyways, yeah. No, but listen, but people can also relate and people can understand and people can empathize and, and people are awesome, like you guys. The high priest was chosen from amongst people. Why? Verse 2, so he can have compassion. He can have compassion. When it says those who are ignorant, the idea is that they're uninformed. They just, they don't know any better. They, they have, they're holding on to a truth that's not true. They're believing something else and those who are going astray, the idea that they're wandering away from the things of God. How can that person have compassion on them? Well, because they're the same. Because he himself also is subject to weakness. There's something there that anchors him. It connects the priest to the people. They could understand. They could relate. They could track because he's weak just like everybody else. Weak in the mind and weak in the flesh and weak in the will. And God designed it that way. He wanted a high priest, someone who was once, or excuse me, amongst the rest of the people so that that person could have compassion. So they could understand. You know, we have people who, um, if I can say it this way and forgive me, I don't want to stumble anybody. They're supposed to relate to us. They're supposed to represent us. They're supposed to uh, serve us. We vote for them. Uh, They're leaders in government. They're uh, leaders in our organization. And yet they're completely out of touch with the rest of us. They don't live amongst us. They don't live with us. They're in a different place. They have different rules. They have a different lifestyle. They're completely detached. They have their own little bubble that's completely different than the rest of us. They can't relate And sometimes they don't want to relate. They just speak platitudes. And yet these are the people that are deciding our laws and our rules and our regulations that impact us every day. See, God didn't want leaders like that. He wanted people who would get it, who would understand. Now, please understand, yes, they're just like everybody else, but they had a a particular calling. There was a role and a responsibility. They were called to holiness and to have a lifestyle, if you will, that was higher than the rest of the people. But they still lived amongst the rest of the people. 
In fact, when you go back to the Old Testament, when God begins to divvy out you know, different land to the different tribes, uh, Levite, they don't get their own plot of land. Everybody else did. Different sizes. It was based upon their uh, population. But God says to the Levites, listen, you're not going to get your own territory. I'm going to give you different cities. And maybe you know this already. Their cities, though, weren't all of a sudden just, you know, all along the Mediterranean Sea, because that's where I would pick. They were sprinkled, they were peppered all throughout the various other tribes. By design, God wanted them to be accessible to the people, live amongst the people, relate to the people. Oh, but they lived differently from the people, sure. There's a parallel there for us. Listen, Christian, we live in this world, but as the saying goes, right, we're not of this world. Our lifestyle our conduct, your choices, your convictions, they should look different than the people around you. We still live with the people around us. But as we follow the Lord, right, what God does in His grace is He changes us from the inside out, and all of a sudden then the things that we used to do, we no longer want to do. They don't give us pleasure like they used to. And so our values change, and our pursuits change, and our passions change. And God is then, He's the one who sanctifies us. And so we live in the world, but we're sanctified from the world. Does that make sense? In John 17, Jesus is praying, and He prays this incredible prayer. Not only a prayer of obedience, Father, I've done everything that you've called me to do, but He also prays for the disciples. And He talks about how, Lord, I've kept them here in this world, those that you gave me. And I gave them your word, and I watched your work in them. But the Lord says, but I'm not going to be no longer in this world. Just like they are in the world, but they are not of the world. And just like the world hated me, the world's going to hate them, and not just the disciples then, guess what? He's praying for you and for me as well. Why? Because we're not of this world just as Jesus is not of this world. Now, sometimes we make the mistake and think, oh, I, I need to go then and just live in my own kind of commune and my own monastery and become a luchador. No, no, I'm saying, sorry. That means wrestler, by the way. Anyways. Now listen, we, our, our lifestyle should be that. But sometimes people make the mistake to think, oh, I should just have only Christian community and a Christian car and a Christian cat. And I'm going to read just Christian newspapers and books. And You know, Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, listen, uh, remember when I told you don't associate with the immoral people? He says, and he makes a clarification, I wasn't talking about, if I can paraphrase, I wasn't talking about your neighbor who needs Jesus and the police are showing up at their house every weekend. No, I, I wasn't saying leave them. He says, because if you were to do that, you'd actually have to leave planet Earth. 
Listen, God wants us to be light and salt to the unbelievers around us. We're not to live like them in sinfulness and the same pursuits and selfishness. Again, the jokes that you tell and the things that you're entertained by and where we spend our money and where we spend our time, it should look different from the rest of the world. You know, that, again, I think sometimes we have the wrong idea of what it means to, you know, relate to people. It doesn't mean we can't be real and honest and, again, be real with our past and what God has saved us out of. But I think sometimes we make the mistake to think, oh, I have to be exactly like the world in order to win the world. No, you don't. And sadly, even some churches take that approach. They start implementing worldly methods and worldly music and secular things, thinking, oh, we want to be relatable to the people. I don't know about you, but it wasn't that the church related to me that caught my attention. It was the fact that they were so different, that my coworker was so different. He didn't, didn't tell the trashy jokes that the rest of us were telling. And whenever something came up, he would leave, and I'd notice, and it, it created a curiosity in me. He was still kind. He spoke to people with respect. It was actually the difference that created a curiosity that God used for me to then to, you know, the Lord drew. Right? It transcends what we're used to. Family, it's a mistake to think that we should live as the world lives. John goes on to tell us in 1 John, don't, do not love the world or the things of the world. And if we're harboring a love for the things of the world, he even says, then the love of God, it can't coexist. And so we're called to live for Christ. It should be different. In fact, that same verse in 1 Peter 2, 9, where it says you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, in the King James, it says you are a peculiar people. Peculiar I like that word. Something's odd about you. Something's different about you. That's what peculiar means. It, it means it's, it's marked by unique ownership. They're, they're, God's name is on you, like uh, Woody in Toy, Toy Story with Andy written on his boot. There, there's a brand that we wear, if you will. That's the idea of, of peculiar. You know, I think of brand, I think not only of name brand things, labels that we wear, but also, you know, the imagery of ranchers that would brand their cattle, right? There's a unique symbol, a family symbol, a, a company symbol, and, and they would take this uh, hot iron, right, and put it in the fire, and they would forever mark uh, that particular animal. That's their property. That's their possession, and that's what God, by the Holy Spirit, you know, does with us, right? We're sealed with the Lord. But what's the brand that we wear as a church? What's the brand that we wear as Christians? Now, certainly we are Calvary Chapel, and that's the part of the body that God has called us to. And, and so we do things that are distinct versus, you know, what our Pentecostal brothers and sisters do or, uh, you know, fundamental Baptist brothers and sisters do, right? They, 
there's a beautiful kaleidoscope of the body of Christ in different flavors and, and styles. And, and that's by design. But the brand that we wear, if I can say this in love, it's not Calvary Chapel. Right? The brand that we wear as Christians is love. It's God's agape love. That should be the distinguishing mark of your life and mine, of my words and my conduct, the place that I go and the things that I do. That agape love would be our brand. And Paul writes to the Corinthians, and you know, that church was really gifted. In fact, he addresses spiritual gifts. But they, they got a little off mark. They were doing things that are a little wonky. And so a lot of the first Corinthians letter is just Paul writing to them, say, hey, you need to come back on center. Like, you've drifted off center point. You need to get your eyes back on Jesus. And one of the things that he addresses is he addresses the idea of love versus giftedness and ability and these things. You guys know 1 Corinthians 13? If you've been to a Christian wedding, that's usually the passage that's quoted, right? But usually it comes from verse 4 and on. The first three verses, or actually the first four verses, Paul sets a qualifier. And here's what he says. He says, though you could speak with the tongues, or though I could speak with tongues of men and angels, he says this, but if I don't have love, if I don't have God's love in me and through me, he says, then I'm going to be like a clanging cymbal and a noisy clanging brass and a noisy cymbal. He says, I, I, I can speak words of prophecy. I can give my body the ultimate sacrifice to be burned, give away all my goods. I, I can have faith that moves mountains. All these amazing things. If someone did that, you'd be like, man, look at that person. There must be really godly. And yet Paul says, inspired by the Spirit, but if I don't have love, here's the evaluation, I'm nothing. It amounts to nothing. It doesn't matter all those things. And so, gang, we want to be marked by love. Loving God and loving others. The qualification for the priest was that they would be compassionate, be kind, be understanding. Chosen from the rest so that that would be able to happen. They're a sinful person just like the rest of their family so they get it and understand. That, that word, compassion, in the original Greek, it's this compound word. And it means between two tensions or between two passions. And so here's the idea. Yes, God called them to this high calling. Yes, they were called to live holy and with purity. But it didn't make them better than everybody else. Right? They weren't to be snobby and stuck up and prideful and highbrow and look down at others as though they were superior and everybody else was inferior. I mean, even though they would wear special garments, and in fact, they had kind of the special hat that even said, holy unto the Lord. But they weren't to have a holier-than-thou attitude to the people that they ministered to. And it's a good reminder for us, again, as believers today. Yes, God's called you. Yes, God saved you. Yes, 
right? We're following the Lord, and maybe you know the Lord, you love the Lord well, and you've been following him for a long time, and you know the scriptures well. I hope that you would agree with this. It doesn't give you the license to be a jerk to other people. Paul says, be careful where we stand lest we fall. The Bible says, let's not forget where we came from. Because we once were just like the neighbor. Right? What sets us apart? Well, the grace of God sets us apart. You know, I found that usually the, a person that relates to God by religious rituals and rules, right, that's the way that they have their relationship with God, it's that person that tends to be very harsh and legalistic and judgmental of others. I mean, that's what happened to the Pharisees. Right? Of all of the times that Jesus had some harsh words to a, a group of people, arguably had the harshest words to the religious leaders. And the Bible says he's a friend to sinners. The people who maybe even knew better or didn't, like he's compassionate to them. He's kind to them. But to the Pharisee, he would call them, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. He hated that kind of snobbery. And it's a warning for us, you guys, to not do that. If that's not the fruit of the Spirit of all, Galatians tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Am I missing one? Goodness. Goodness, gracious. Yeah, goodness. And he says, and against such there is no law, right? Galatians 5. And so he has compassion. For us, it means that we then love people. Because of this, verse 3, he's required for the people, but also for himself to offer sacrifices for his sins. We talked about this last week. He gets in line, just like everybody else, to make a sacrifice for sin. The priest, while he's special, is a regular dude, just like everybody else. They put on their sandals, just like their neighbors do. That word compassionate in verse 2, as I mentioned, the word is metriopatheo. It means to be between two affections, and it's the idea of holding tension. Tension in the sense that as the high priest, he had to represent God to stand for purity, to stand for holiness. He couldn't turn a blind eye to sin. That's because that God wouldn't do that. And yet at the same time, very aware of his own sinfulness, very aware of the fact that he too had to get in line just like everybody else and make a sacrifice to atone for his own stupidity. And so there's this tension that he walked in. A person who knew they were a sinner, knew that they blow it, knew that they weren't perfect, but yet would represent a perfect and holy God. And we experience that tension, don't we? I mean, how many of you as parents have felt guilty, like, trying to tell your kids not to do certain things, but you know yourself, like, you're, you're just as guilty? And the older they get, as my kids have gotten older, it's harder because now they know, and sometimes they'll even call you on it, right? I'm like, hey, you better wash your clothes. You're old enough to wash your clothes and fold them and put them away. My kids are like, oh, yeah, well, you were in jail at my age. Man, Christy, tell them, you know. We live in that kind of tension. 
we're not perfect. We're aware that we're not perfect, and yet we, we can't turn a blind eye to sin. We can't say, well, it's okay. Right? No, we live in that same tension. And it's a tension that God prescribes for us. Because on one side, it is for us then to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to pursue holiness and purity. Right? The saying is that no one drifts to holiness. It's, we have to be intentional about it. And part of that is you coming here. Thank you, by the way, this morning. But at the same time, we also want to grow in grace and mercy with others. We don't want to be pharisaical. We want to be compassionate. It's a tension that I live in too, you know. Uh, I, I want to be able to come to the pulpit every time and stand before you above reproach. I think that's important. I feel like by God's grace alone, I can stand before you and say that I'm not living any hidden secret life of sin. I'm not looking at stuff that I'm not supposed to or, you know, having relationships that are out of bounds. I, you know, I, I want to be able to stand at the pulpit above reproach. But I'm not standing up here to say I'm perfect. <laughs> my, my wife will tell you. My kids will tell you. <laughs> and they'll happily tell you. <laughs> I'm a sinner just like you are. And if you've been around for a while, some of you guys know, the, the, I've had this struggle for years, and it showed up the other day, and I'm like, oh, man, Lord, deliver me from this. Anytime I go to the bank, I, my mind just begins to wander. How could I rob this place, you know? Because at Japanese bank, you take a number, you kind of sit down, and, and then I just start entertaining myself. There's a camera there, and, and it's exasperated because of COVID, right? We're wearing masks. I think I was actually wearing a hat that day. I thought, all I need is sunglasses on. And I've watched a lot of movies. I could pull this off. You know? Sin. Sinner. But we all are. And yet we live in this healthy tension, conscious of our, con- aware of our own weakness. And yet, at the same time, wanting to pursue godliness. And so what's the principle for us? We want to pursue holiness, but with a whole lot of humility. Listen, there's one more note to take away from this. Hopefully I can build a bridge to the point and it's not too far off the text. See, this verse reminds us that the high priest was a human being. It reminds us that they had to stand in line and make sacrifice for their sin, just like everybody else. So it reminds us that they are fallible, just like everybody else. They have a high calling. They have a God-given position. They have a lot of influence. But at the end of the day, they are not God. And I share this to say there's a good reminder and perhaps even a warning for us. Because the warning is this, there are people that God has brought maybe into our life in this season, and they are being used mightily of the Lord. And it's not to take away from giftedness and impact of ministry, sizes of churches, but the danger is is that some ministries and some ministers have moved into celebrity status, right, where we have to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to then become, allow us to idolize them. 
bloggers and musicians and pastors and ministries. Because what happens, and maybe you've seen it too and I have, from time to time they fall. Or they will say, I'm not a believer anymore. And I've watched people and I've watched some friends who all of a sudden their faith is shaken. They, they have a crisis of faith because of what somebody else has, is doing or claiming. I, I want to say this in love, but I want to say this with, with a little bit of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sternness. Do not build your foundation on anybody else but Jesus Christ. Do not allow yourself to put, and I'm going to include myself, okay, any pastor, any minister, any person on any pedestal, only Jesus belongs there. Now, is there a place for us to give appropriate respect and reverence to people that minister? Yes, and the Bible tells us these things. Right In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, Hey, I urge you, brethren, for those who minister amongst you, your leaders in God's work, to give them honor. They care for you and they do a great work. And so show them respect. That that's appropriate. Paul tells Timothy, the leaders who are leading amongst you, they're worthy of double honor. And so love them and, and care for them. You know, I'm sharing these. It sounds a little self-serving, I realize, right? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. This is going to be our church memory verse. Obey your pastor. Submit to them, because why? They watch over your souls, and they're going to give an account. That's very sobering. And to this end, it says, and let them then minister with joy, not with grief, because it would be no advantage to you. It's a good verse. So listen, understand, there's an appropriate line in which we give respect to our mentors and our pastors and people who've poured into us, right, who've discipled us. That's good. But there's a line. We have to be careful that we don't allow our affections to become idolized, to become idolatry, or to become the anchor of our faith and our walk to somebody else. Because people will fail you. Now, I don't think any pastor or leader gets up in the morning and says, you know what, I wonder how I can blow my walk really royally today. How can I stumble people the most? Like for me, I never would have any intention to hurt you or upset you. But here's the reality. I'm a knucklehead, and there'll be times I'm going to disappoint you. You're going to be frustrated. You're not going to agree. But listen, what do we do with that? If you tie your faith to Jesus to me, <laughs> you're going to be sorely disappointed. And or any other man. Or person. Can we make sure we have the right foundation? Amen? All right. Lastly, verse 4, it says, No man takes this honor to himself, but he is called by God, just as Aaron was. This last qualification really isn't a qualification, it's a clarification. What qualified the people? Well, God called them. That's the quality. God called them. No person can just wake up in the morning and says, oh, I think I'm going to. I'm going to self-identify as a priest today. That wasn't allowed. <laughs> Only God got to decide. Only God got to pick. 
In fact, he only picked Aaron and Aaron's family and the Levites. And for high priest, it was only Aaron's family. And so even if you're a Levite, if you weren't part of Aaron's family, you still got to serve, you get, still got to be a priest, but you weren't the high priest. And here's the thing, even if you didn't like it, guess what? That's the way God wanted it. In Numbers chapter 16, we read about this guy by the name of Korah. You guys know about Korah's rebellion? If not, you can read it later. This guy, on my paraphrase, said, you know what? I can do a way better job than Moses and Aaron. Those guys are clowns. And so he rallied a bunch of his boys, 250 of them, and they, they led a revolt. He led this campaign. And he went and said, hey, you're done. We want to insert ourselves. And so God said, no, no, I don't think so, buddy. And first of all, he then proved that Aaron was the high priest. He said, okay, lay down your staff, right? And then Aaron's staff budded, right? There, there's fruit that will come. But second to that, God says, I'm done. He opened up the earth and Kor and those guys got swallowed by the earth, right? The mistake that Kor made was that he didn't realize, no, God got to choose. He doesn't get to decide. The Lord didn't say, oh, let's have a popularity contest. Let's take it to a vote. Why don't you submit your resumes? I'm going to pick the best qualified. God chose. And it didn't matter. I mean, regardless, later on we read about even kings. King Saul, who we're told he's, he's waiting for Samuel. Samuel says, hey, wait here. I'm going to go do some stuff. I'll come back. We'll make a sacrifice. We'll have a barbecue. It's going to be great. We read that Samuel gets impatient, or Saul gets impatient. And so he goes to make the sacrifice. Samuel comes back, and my paraphrase, he's like, what are you doing, dude? Like, you're not supposed to do that. The same thing happened with King Uzziah, 2 Chronicles. Well, God blessed him in the beginning, but he got big in the head. It says he got prideful in his power, and and he goes into the temple and he's going to go offer incense on the altar of incense. Azariah, the high priest, comes in and he says, Get out of here, dude. God's not honored by that. Listen, here, here's the point I want to make. We understand, okay, God gets to choose. God gets to pick. Right? We, we didn't, uh, for example, even with Alex, like, you know, it wasn't as though we're like, hey, We'll just get the guy that seems to be the funniest. Everybody likes him. That's true of Alex. But the Lord picked him. God anointed him. We're really just recognizing what God is saying. But see, like Korah with Aaron and others, they didn't agree, they didn't like it, but it didn't matter. And, and, and here's... Uh, Here's a connection for the reader that maybe gets lost as we're talking about this. See, as the reader is reading this and the writer is reminding them of how God picked the high priest, even for them, the high priest that's sitting and ministering to them wasn't chosen by God. Even though God says it's supposed to be that way. From the time of Jesus, it was the Romans that installed the high priest. And if they didn't like it, they would switch them out. That's why we read during the trial of Jesus, it was Annas and Caiaphas. Herod said, ah, I don't think so. It became all political. 
So the whole system that God had arranged became corrupted. But the writer is reminding them, it doesn't matter though, God's word still stands. And so here's the parallel for us. We live in a world that's far departed from what God's word says. What God has ordained, what God has designed and defined, marriage, your gender identity, what family looks like, what church is supposed to, how it's supposed to look, the way that we worship. And we live in a world that says, you know what, we don't, we're going to make our own definition. And sadly, there are Christians who say, okay, let's embrace the world's definition. There are churches who are like, okay, let's embrace the world's definition. God's word is not negated. It's not invalidated by what culture says, what politicians' policies they make, what Hollywood says, what society promotes. Gang, again, if we build our foundation on that, we have built on the wrong foundation. The truth of God's word remains. And where do we get our cue then from what is right and wrong? It's not from what society is doing. It's not from what the world is embracing. It is from what the word of God says. And we need to stick to the scriptures. If we don't, we are out of bounds. And so very simply, it is honor and obey what God has declared to be the right way. Amen? I pray so. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. God, thank you that you have called us out of darkness and into your light. Thank you, God, that the grace that saved us and can save us even right now, as we turn from sin and turn to you, it's the same grace that sustains us. Oh, we're not perfect. We're still works in progress. God, forgive us for thinking we're better or anything really more than we are. But Lord, also thank you for your love that doesn't leave us as we are. We want to be in pursuit of purity and holiness, but with a great humility. And Lord, coupled with a willingness then to share your goodness with the people around us to the people we're connected to, to let them know that there's a God who loves them, accepts them as they are, just as you did with us. But Lord, while the rest of the world begins to pursue other things, even making its way into church and churches, Lord, may we not depart from the Scripture. May we honor you, Lord, in what you have said, And what you say is right and what you say is wrong. God, I pray for our church. I pray for myself. May we press into you, Lord, today and every day. It's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things together. Amen. Amen. Amen.